Welcome to the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the LSE. We're thrilled to be back for Season 3 of Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice, a visiting lecture series coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, with Assistant Professor in International Development, Dr Laura Mann. Each week, renowned guest lecturers, including Harjun Chang, Rafif Siada, Branka Milanovic and Jayati Ghosh, share their expertise and spark discussion on a range of contemporary global issues in development, from the links between economics and science fiction, to how inequality is driving the climate crisis, to the impact of social media and disinformation on development. In 2020, we moved the series online, enabling us to host fantastic speakers from around the world and to stream the lectures online. This year, we moved the series back to in-person for our students and staff, but we'll continue to share the lectures with a global audience through YouTube, podcasts and blogs. I hope you enjoy the talk. Okay, so I'm sure everybody in the room is very well aware of who our brilliant speaker is today. So I'm going to keep my introduction short, otherwise it could take up the whole session. I'll just say that Professor Jayati Ghosh is one of the leading development economists in the world today and very much a friend of our department. Uh, her most recent book is The Making of a Catastrophe, COVID-19 and the Indian Economy. Um, and indeed, two years ago, she came to the LSE Cutting Edge Lecture Series to talk about COVID and the Indian economy. So it's possible that today will be a little preview of, of her next book. So she's going to be talking about why inequality is the basic driver of the climate crisis and what we can do about it, which is obviously a very important topic as we're reading about the COP meeting in Cairo this week. Um, Jayati is going to speak for 40 minutes, and then we're going to hear from our discussant, Professor Kathy Hochstetler, uh, who is our head of department, and she's also a political scientist who works on the politics of renewable energy transitions, particularly in South Africa and Brazil, and global environmental governance more broadly. Um, so without further ado, I'd like everybody to join me in welcoming Jayati back to the LSE and back to the Department of International Development. Thank you so much, Laura. It's a real pleasure to be with all of you again, and I'm really happy to have you and Catherine uh, here as part of this discussion. Um, and I'm looking forward to learning a lot uh, from Catherine's interventions and from the questions, because I remember last time as well, the questions were very insightful and I, I really uh, ended up thinking a lot more about certain things because of that. So I'm going to share my screen and um, there we go. Okay. And let me just put it on the... Okay, let's find the first slide. There we go. Yes. So what I'm, well, the title is kind of obvious about uh, inequality being the basic driver of the climate crisis. But I, I want to emphasize this even more because right now, as we're getting reports from COP27, and we will, uh, tomorrow is the last day, as you know, and whatever communique comes out, it already is very clear that it's not going to reflect this point that I'm making, that it's not going to take up the issues that I'm going to be talking about, that it's not really going to do anything, therefore, about the climate crisis. Because 
I'm going to argue that it's inequality globally, spatially, and within countries, which is the basic driver. And that most of the stuff, the negotiations and the other discussions that go on at COP and have gone on in this particular COP in Egypt have not taken that sufficiently into account. And I'm not addressing that basic cause. Um, Laura mentioned that this might be the topic of my next book. Well, in fact, it is the topic of a very recent book that I was involved in writing. And um, let me cheat a little bit and put it into the chat because I foolishly did not um, uh, bring, uh, I didn't uh, put a copy of this in, into the uh, PowerPoint, which I should have done. And it's called Earth for All. And it's a report of the Club of Rome. Well, I don't know how many of you have heard of the Club of Rome, but they produced 50 years ago, a very famous document called Limits to Growth. Uh, not Earth for All, but Earth for All, I'm sorry. Um, and um, they produced a document 50 years ago that warned that if we continued on that growth trajectory, we were going to end up with very, very serious environmental problems, and that we should stop thinking of GDP growth as the basic defining feature of human progress. And we should think of ways of improving the human condition without necessarily always relying on growing GDP. Uh, what's interesting about that, this was based on technical simulations. What was interesting about that report is that it's turned out to be remarkably prescient. There's some very interesting work done uh, by um, some scientists uh, who have actually shown that the projections of that early report of 50 years ago are pretty much on course with what has occurred in terms of what we would expect if we went along that particular route. And this report to the Club of Rome is one that is saying we can do it differently, we have options. We don't have to continue on a business as usual basis that is actually leading us all to climate disaster. We can think of dramatically changing that and doing what we have called in the book, a giant leap. A giant leap that actually trans makes five fundamental transformations. It reduces inequality, it tries to eliminate poverty, it transforms food systems, it tries to ensure basic incomes for all, and it electrifies pretty much everything. And all of that, of course, requires a whole bunch of other things. What I'm gonna talk about in this lecture is why doing something about inequality is a critical feature of that particular thing that I have just mentioned, that whole strategy that I mentioned. Okay. So let's just remind ourselves what the IPCC has been telling us. This is the Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change, which is composed of scientists from across the world. And they have been producing reports, which I think most people don't read because if they did read them, we, they wouldn't be able to sleep at night. The reports of the IPCC are increasingly horrifying. And what they tell us now is that, I'm sorry, I, I should, that climate change has, it's no longer in the future. It's no longer something that we're on the brink of. It is very much happening. And it's happening much faster than anyone anticipated, including the scientists who have been studying this. 
So it has already caused substantial damage and loss in the earth, in, in terrestrial species, in freshwater uh, and marine open uh, ecosystems. All of these changes are larger than the previous IPCC reports estimated. So the report in May tells us that we didn't anticipate this in February. We didn't anticipate this the previous November. We didn't anticipate this the previous April. Each report is telling us that changes have occurred that we didn't anticipate even a few months earlier. And what this means is that there is a very widespread deterioration in our planetary systems, in the <coughs> structures and functions of our ecosystem, in our resilience, in the natural adaptive capacity of species, both biological and other, as well as seasonal timing shifts, which have huge impacts. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, what's really worrying is that some of these losses are already irreversible. We can't do anything about them. Many, many species, thousands of species are extinct now, driven by climate change. There are other, <coughs> there are other impacts that are close to irreversible. For example, we have hydrological changes. The glaciers are melting. There are changes in some mountain and Arctic ecosystems. There are riverine changes that the seawater levels are rising. Many of these also are close to irreversible. So it's not that, oh, if we keep everything down to 1.5 degrees heating, we'll be all right. No, some of these changes are happening already and they're already extremely severe. And of course, all, all of these are terrible in themselves. They're terrible for the planet. They're terrible for uh, the, the environment that we live in. But of course we know they also have very extremely adverse social and economic consequences. And they have impacts on physical and mental health. Now, this is particularly marked in low and middle income countries. I've used the shorthand here, LMICs, and that's what I will use uh, in the rest of the uh, presentation as well. And we know that there are major humanitarian crises occurring when climate change and, and all of these hazards interact with societies and economies that are already extremely vulnerable. Think of the countries in the Caribbean, think of the countries in Central America that are experiencing extreme uh, economic and political instability, Haiti, for example. Uh, think of countries in Sub-Saharan Africa and in South Asia, where you have extreme debt crisis, balance of payments vulnerability, political unrest, and major climate change. The other thing the IPCC report tells us, which is very worrying, is that there are very large gaps in adaptation. So what are we finding? That yes, climate change is already happening. It's not only mitigation that we have to worry about. We have to talk about adaptation. But there are huge gaps. These are, are gaps across regions, across countries, across specific areas, and of course, within all of these among categories of people. There are some who are able to adapt because of greater wealth or power or access to resources or governmental facilities. And there are others who cannot, who cannot actually take the burden of adaptation. But another very interesting thing the IPCC reports have pointed to is what they call maladaptation. In other words, when you do adaptation measures that make things worse, they add to inequality and they actually add to climate change. <clears throat> For example, when you have uh, fire-adapted ecosystems, naturally fire-adapted, but you have more severity and more 
frequent fires. Let's take California, a lot of the American Midwest, uh, Siberia, etc. And so you bring in fire, fire suppression measures. That actually makes things worse. When you're getting more flooding, you build seawalls, you build hard defenses, you make concrete walls, hoping that that will save you and your city. That makes things worse. Things get warmer, they, everything's heating up. What do you do? You say, well, let's air condition more. Let's add to the air conditioning. Again, it's making things worse. So there's much more maladaptation mal now, which is adding to the problem. Now, what I'm going to be talking about much more now here is really how we are trying to deal with all of this. And what's uh, critical here is, um, is a basic problem with humanity, if you like, which is that we know that climate change is global, that it doesn't look at passports and visas, and it doesn't stop at a particular border but we're still trying to deal with it nationally. We're still trying, we have a global meeting, but it's all about different countries coming and giving their commitments and what they are willing to do, okay? So the way it works is that basically countries are assigned a sort of responsibility, a climate responsibility based on their current carbon emissions and their current total carbon emissions, in fact. And of course, these are then the basis of the negotiations and the commitments to control. This is what happened in Glasgow last year in COP26. This is what's happening now in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt right now. And uh, this is a problem for many reasons. First of all, of course, it ignores historical responsibility, the carbon debt. We're in this problem now because we've had one and a half centuries of massive carbon emissions. So it's the stock of carbon in the atmosphere that is causing this warming. If we stopped all fossil fuel uh, uh, production today, if we stopped it all right now, we would still have a, a warmer and warmer climate because of the fact that we have so many carbon emissions out there. There is a, a broad stock. And of course, we know that the richer countries have a greater responsibility in that stock and in that carbon debt. But another problem, is that it, the measure of GDP of national income that is used to compare across countries, it relies on what are called the purchasing power parity measures. That is, it doesn't use the actual market exchange rates, the exchange rates that all of us experience and know. Oh, well, in, in England, you know about it because your exchange rate has been falling, right? Your nominal exchange rate has been falling massively, but your PPP exchange rate probably hasn't been falling that much your purchasing power parity exchange rate hasn't been falling that much. Also because your inflation is going up, but because it's a completely artificial construct. It's a measure that is based on a certain notion of what the pound can buy in this country compared to what the rupee can buy in India and the dollar can buy in the US and so on. Now that's a wrong measure because it actually overstates the incomes of poorer countries. I'm not going to go into this point. It's a very complex point, and we could have one whole hour just on this. So I will just leave you with that. And perhaps at some future date, we can have a whole discussion just on why PPP measures are so wrong. The problem is that these are what are used for international negotiations in the COP27, in the WTO, by the World Bank, and everywhere. And that's, that's a mistake, because we are making poorer countries out to be richer than they are. But another big problem is that carbon emissions are measured according to production rather than consumption. 
And that's a problem because a lot of the countries of the North actually emit more carbon through their consumption. That is to say, they import a lot of carbon intensive goods. And so you end up blaming the producers of those goods which are consumed in the North. And I would argue that that's a problem as well. I'm going to talk about that in much more detail a bit later. Then you find that the recent emission, increases in carbon emissions are used to blame certain countries. And of course, the countries that are blamed the most are China and India. China, because it's become the biggest emitter in absolute terms, not in per capita terms, but in absolute terms. And India, because it's one of the countries in which the emissions have been rising the most rapidly and has become the fifth or sixth largest emitter. Okay, so then the fingers are pointed at China and India without recognizing all the other features that I've mentioned. Let's just look at the carbon debt, for example. Now, between 1850 and 2011, this is one estimate that suggests that today's rich countries, now they're 14% of the world population, okay, the developed countries, but they account for nearly 80% of the total carbon emissions, the cumulative carbon emissions between 1850 and 2011, okay? Now you could say, well, wait a minute, 1850, nobody knew that carbon was an issue. And at least, you know, in the 19th century, you can't blame our ancestors for things they did when nobody had the knowledge and the science to recognize that this would be a problem. Well, it turns out that more than half of these historical emissions occurred just in the last 30 years. And in the last 30 years, by the way, everybody knew. Huh? The, the US government knew, the State Department, uh, you know, it's very clear that all their documents show that they were very aware of the problem of carbon emissions and of the role of fossil fuels in that. In Europe, they knew, everybody knew that it was a problem and what was causing it. And yet more than half of these historical emissions occurred in the last 30 years. Now let's look at the current measures of carbon emissions. And there are many different ways of measuring who's responsible in terms of the carbon emissions. One of them and the one that is used most broadly is production-based. This is what the UNFCCC does. This is the, what the COPs do, the COP27 and, and all of the others. They say that whatever happens, whatever carbon emissions occur within your country, for any production or distribution of goods and services, all of that is your problem. You are responsible for those carbon emissions, for all of the production, for all the goods and services and the transport to the border. Now, obviously this then doesn't consider the impact of cross-border trade, right? Which I just mentioned to you. But there are other ways of measuring carbon emission. You could go for a more international concept, you could look at extraction-based. That is, you most of the carbon emissions happen because of nat natural resources, especially fossil fuels, we know that. So let's look at the full life cycle of the fossil fuels. And you allocate responsibility to those who extract the resource and the downstream emissions enabled by the sale of that resource, okay? So you're doing a kind of value chain, or if you like, a carbon emissions chain of that natural resource. Okay, another way of doing it is to look at the value added emissions. You allocate according to the share of value added over the life cycle of the product. In each step of the value chain, you say, well, all right, this is the carbon emissions emitted in that step. Okay, and it's a more complicated thing and it's, it's really quite an exercise to find it, but it is something that could be done. 
But one easier way of doing this is actually to look at consumption-based emissions. That is those that result from just meeting domestic demand, domestic demand on both consumption and investment. And so all of the life cycle emissions of that, uh, the responsibility is then allocated to the final consumers of the goods and services. And as you can see, there is some justice to that argument. You're saying, well, if you consume it, then you're responsible for it. <clears throat> Let's look at the differences. What do you get when you actually measure emissions in these different ways? So according to this, the largest emitter in the world today is China. <laughs> with a, a massive increase, as you can see, from 2000. This is 2019, so it's pre-pandemic, okay? But nonetheless, you can see that in the two decades of the this century, China has more than tripled its emissions to get to become the largest emitter. <coughs> Sorry, do excuse me. I don't know why I had this cough suddenly. And the United States, which was the largest emitter by a long shot, is now the second. Then India is now the third largest emitter. So again, a very dramatic increase, but it's still way below China and the US. Russia, uh, Japan, Iran, I mean, a bunch of other countries. Some of these countries are actually mineral and fossil fuel exporters, and they tend to be larger emitters overall, even relative to population. But of course, per capita, it looks very different. If you look at it purely in per capita production terms, then you find that the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Australia are the largest emitters, okay? China is less than half of the United States in per capita terms. India is one eighth of the United States in per capita terms. And the other high per capita emitters are really countries that are mainly fossil fuel exporters, Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Australia as a mineral exporter, okay? But as I mentioned, international trade is a very big player in this. International trade is what is driving a lot of the emissions. It has changed uh, between uh, 2005 when it was at its peak uh, in terms of determining the difference between production and consumption emissions, but it is still very significant. So the uh, orange bars here tell you the final demand-based emissions, okay? That's consumption plus investment. The blue bars are the production-based emissions and the gray bars is the balance. So a negative balance means that you're importing a lot of these carbon intensive consumption, okay? You are really making some other country do the carbon emissions, but you are getting the benefit of that consumption. So all of the ones who have the gray bars in the negative territory, they are all net, uh, if you like, exporters of emissions. They have made other countries do the carbon emissions on their behalf, okay? The United States, Japan, UK, France, Germany, Italy, no surprises here. These are all, by the way, countries chosen because they're very large emitters. China, it turns out, its production emissions are well below, uh, well above its final demand emissions. In other words, it has a large positive balance, the largest positive balance. It is exporting to other countries. And so it's taking on the burden of these emissions, if you like, one way of putting it, through its exports. 
And that's why it has such a high emissions thing. But this is also true of Russia, of India, of Saudi Arabia, all countries in which we are actually consuming less, uh, uh, producing less emissions in our consu consumption and investment than we are in our production. But if you compare now per capita emissions of final demand, that's the real difference. That's where in fact the result is quite remarkable. And now you find that the US is just way ahead of the charts relative to everyone else, okay? It's 18.1 metric tons and that's 2015. It was much higher just pre-pandemic. And the next are Japan and Germany at nearly 11 metric tons. India, as you can see here, it's only 1.5 metric tons. It's a pitiful small amount in per capita terms. And even China is significantly less. It's less than six metric tons, less than one third that of the US in per capita by emissions by final demand. So you can see that the significance of trade and the ability to export the more carbon emitting activities to other countries. But this, I want you to really just look at this table very carefully. This table is really important because it's telling us that emissions within countries and regions is also very important. Inequality of emissions among the categories of income is very, very crucial and important. This chart is due to data derived by Luca Chancel of the World Inequality Lab in Paris. They're doing some really interesting work on measuring carbon emissions within countries according to income and by using consumption expenditure surveys and, and all kinds of other things. And what is this is a really remarkable uh, table for me anyway, because it's telling us so many things. It's telling us, first of all, that the per capita emissions of a particular country disguise massive variation within that country. But the second thing it's telling us is that while North America is still clearly ahead of the game in terms of the top and the middle categories of its population, the bottom half, it's still higher than everyone else, but it's not that high relative to the richest in East Asia or in Russia and Central Asia or the Middle East and North Africa or South Asia. It's, in other words, the bottom half of the population of North America is emitting less in carbon than the richest categories of all of these developing country regions. And that's really striking. In fact, it's less than one fourth of the richest 10% of East Asia. Um, excuse me for a minute. I just have to open the door for someone. Excuse me. Yes, sorry, I'm back. Um, and the richest in, uh, in South and Southeast Asia are well over double the bottom half of the population of uh, Europe, for example. Now, this is quite striking. This is something I didn't expect either. This is telling us that the top 10% of the world are really the worst emitters. And that, that is true across regions. What's even more striking, the World Inequality uh, Lab data tell us that the bottom half of the population, their emissions have been declining over the past decade in almost all, re in all regions. 
On the other hand, the emissions of the top 10% have just exploded. So it's really quite striking to see how uh, dramatically internal inequalities are playing into this issue of emissions. Now, I just want to do a quick foray into the components of carbon emission reduction. You can reduce it in many different ways. Globally, it's come down as a share of GDP, okay? In relation to GDP, and you can do it in several different ways. You can reduce the energy use per unit of GDP. And that usually happens when the sectoral composition of the economy changes. If you move away from agriculture and heavy machine using and energy using industries to certain kinds of services, then not Bitcoin, not if you are you know, mining cryptocurrency, but other kinds of services, then you reduce your energy unit use per unit of GDP. Or within sectors, you can have technological changes that reduce energy consumption per unit of output. And you can change the kinds of energy you use. You can move from the worst, uh, most carbon emitting sources like coal to other fossil fuels like petroleum and natural gas to nuclear. I haven't mentioned it here because there are other problems with nuclear to renewable energy, to solar and wind, which is the most desirable option. So even if you use the same energy per unit of output, if you change your energy composition, you could be reducing carbon emissions. And what we find is that a little bit of each has been happening in all of these countries, or most of these countries, okay? I've taken here the top uh, emitters globally, and you find that, um, you know, it's kind of mixed the, uh, the, the reliance on different elements of it. But if you look at the change in the carbon intensity, I realize this is a very dense table. I apologize for it. I just want to highlight a, a bunch of points. First of all, the carbon emissions by population has gone up only for China and India and South Africa in, and Russia. For all the other countries, it's fallen. But the energy intensity ratio has fallen everywhere. That is, we're all using less energy per unit of GDP. That's because of the sectoral changes that I mentioned. And the kinds of um, emissions that we are doing for energy has again reduced or improved for all countries except India and Japan. That is to say, everybody's moving to slightly less carbon emitting forms of energy on balance. In India, no, we have uh, actually increased our reliance on coal because it is cheaper, as well as on certain fossil fuels because of our own natural gas and uh, other discoveries. And in Japan, after Fukushima, they moved away from nuclear power back to fossil fuels, okay? But remember that per capita income is only one factor in the things that determine this change in the energy intensity of GDP. There is structural changes, there are technological changes. The absolute levels of carbon intensity, emission intensity are higher in poorer countries, like India, South Africa, China, as well as the countries that rely on fossil fuel exports, like Russia. But while we have high levels of energy, uh, um, energy emission intensity, 
we have very low levels in India of per capita emission and per capita income. In other words, the lower you are in the per capita income line, the lower you are likely to be in the per capita emissions as well. But this decline, I told you it's been quite significant. The decline has varied from only 13% in Italy to about 40% in the UK. And in many of the rich countries, this has happened because they have reduced their share of the carbon emitting energy sources, okay? The big discussion in COP is really all about that. How do you change your energy source? But Japan and India, as I mentioned to you, increased their reliance on brown energy. For poorer countries, for developing countries, one big issue is that they don't get access to the frontline technologies for energy saving and emission reducing production. Some of this is really because, or not some of this, most of this is because of the global intellectual property rights regime, the patents and other rights, monopolies over knowledge that do not allow poorer countries access to the latest technologies. And because the rich countries and their governments have really resisted forcing technology transfer. I talked about the role of cross-border trade. And you know, this is something that has become very important in the first, first two decades of this century, mainly because of China. The big elephant in everybody's room is China as the major manufacturing exporter. And in the first two decades of this century, the manufacturing exports increased by more than 10 times in value and even more in volume. A large part of that, was much more carbon intensive production than uh, was being produced in the rich countries. So for example, the US imports non-electrical machinery and transport equipment that increased from China, that increased by about eight times, nearly eight times. And those are typically much more carbon intensive producing activities. So by 2015, Imports from China alone were more than half of that balance that I showed you, that gray bar, the final demand minus the domestic production. For the USA, they were nearly two thirds for Japan, nearly half for Germany, nearly two fifths for the UK. It was driven by the advanced economies and their multinational companies. So it wasn't like China is saying, oh, we're gonna do this. It is multinational companies from the North who are driving this process. And it really took off after China joined the WTO and it peaked at around 2009-10 and you see a slight decline. But what's quite interesting is that China's trade with developing countries and with Russia shows the opposite balance. Here it's not that China is producing more emissions for export, it is that China is actually receiving from these developing countries much more carbon emitting products. Now, I've already shown you this graph, this chart table, but I just want to highlight that what this shows us is that the rich are the ones responsible for the carbon emissions, really. And um, there's other data, I just, that was data from the World Inequality Lab. This is from Oxfam's work, which shows that the richest 10% of the world added more than half of all the carbon emissions in the two and a half decades between 1990 and 2015. And the richest 1% added 15% of the carbon emissions. That's more than all of the citizens of the EU, EU did and more than double what the poorest half of humanity did, which was 7%.
annual emissions of this richest category grew by 60% between 1990 and 2015. And within that, the richest 5%, that is even richer than the top 10%, the richest 5% were responsible for more than one third of this growth. But also, as I told you earlier, the poorest half of the world, also in every region, their emissions came, came down. Now, remember that when they tell you that the way to deal with this is a carbon tax, because a carbon tax will fall dominantly on the poor who have already reduced their emissions in every region. And it will barely affect the top 10% who are the ones who are really responsible. Now we get down to how do we do, what do we do about it? How do we deal with this problem? And I've mentioned technology as a big block, but another major impediment is the lack of finance. Um, in 2012, the rich countries promised 100 billion a year uh, in one of the COPs, 100 billion a year for climate finance alone. And it was understood, although it was not explicitly stated, but it was understood that this would be bilateral finance. But in fact, they have, as you can see, in that period since then, they barely have managed, I mean, the highest they got was close to 80 billion. I think in 2020, uh, they managed 82 billion. Last year was even less. But bilateral public climate finance, which is what was promised in the as the 100 billion, that has been pathetic. It's been only between 25 and 32 billion tons, uh, billion dollars per year. I mean, nothing. Why do I say it's nothing? Because put this in relation to the amount of money the rich countries found they could just produce out of a hat during the pandemic. Suddenly we are talking trillions, right? Suddenly all these countries can spend trillions and trillions of dollars, uh, which apparently was simply not there or available for the decade before that. And so climate finance has been completely inadequate. But what's been even worse is that fossil fuel subsidies have continued over time. They have increased. Uh, the IMF has done this study, which is looking at the total subsidies. The explicit subsidies are the gray bar, and that's the number everybody throws around, 550 billion. The blue bars are the implicit subsidies. And uh, that's really shocking because that's all of the other things that you're doing, the finance you're providing uh, at cheaper rates, the other kinds of ways in which you do not count for the, uh, the fallout of particular types of investment, the way you uh, do not tax them for the impact they have on certain kinds of things, that's grown massively. In the United States, as you can see, it's a huge amount, 700 billion for just the United States. Nearly 6 trillion, 5.9 trillion for the world as a whole. So what's 100 billion, which they don't get, by the way, compared to this massive amount, right? So green finance doesn't stand a chance when brown finance is getting this much money. But the problem is that very often, especially in developing countries like my own, the problem is posed as you know, a, a sort of contradiction between development and poverty redu reduction. Uh, on the one side and climate mitigation on the other side. That you know you can choose to make your people elect have electrification and everybody getting basic needs and all that, or you can reduce uh, the carbon emissions. That's a very false dilemma. In fact, as I've shown you, you can choose a different development pattern. You can choose one that improves the levels of energy efficiency of the economy, changes 
the pattern of investment and consumption to activities that require less energy and change your energy sources, you know, from the most carbon emitting to the cleanest ones. This definitely requires a change in the patterns of urbanization so that you can operate much more on a system that's based on public transport, on less need to commute to work, on more ability to find basic services near walking distance from where people live and so on. And you can imagine smart cities that take into account all of this. But of course it requires much more investment. Now there's an uh, estimate done by my colleague Bob Polin at UMass and Noam Chomsky in a recent book. Uh, they say that, look, in fact, you can do this with only one and a half percent of global GDP or not even global of the large economies annually uh, over a decade. That's not so much, that's really nothing when you consider the kinds of massive money that was kept for the fiscal stimuli during the pandemic. But of course, as I've mentioned, access to finance is one thing, access to technology is also absolutely critical. The problem for developing countries is that the current mitigation strategies, well, first of all, they don't work, which I haven't mentioned here, but it's kind of obvious. But for example, cap and trade, where you provide private companies and countries incentives to uh, cap your own emissions or to trade off your own emissions with some other country that is not using its limits. That's not really effective in reducing emissions. It just transfers the location. One of the problems with mitigation is that, of course, it requires electrification of everything. And that means more solar panels, more electric cars, more, more, many more batteries, which requires lithium, which requires rare earths, which requires new minerals. And there's a real concern about a new resource grab. We've already seen this happen in the lithium triangle in Latin America. And there are real concerns in developing countries that they are going to face a resource curse and environmental problems of mining because of these new minerals that are required for the electrification. Mitigation also, a big aspect of that is recycling waste. Unfortunately, most of the waste of rich countries is exported to the developing world to be recycled. It's not recycled in, within the countries. It's exported, often very hazardous, and usually then not recycled properly, not dealt with properly, and with very adverse environmental implications, whether it's e-waste seeping in chemicals into the landfills and into the soil, and therefore affecting soil productivity, or it is the poisons generated from these wastes. Uh, there are many concerns about the way recycling is occurring and the tendency of the rich countries to sort of palm it off and in the cheapest possible way to other countries where they don't have to see the problem. As I mentioned, the subsidies and the way in which the world is organized at the moment, it's still much more uh, profitable to fund brown investments. And this is also because we are not making regulations or other disincentives that will force the financial markets to actually do less brown and more green investments. The other big uh, sort of thing of the last decade has been ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance Indicators for private investors. It's supposed to be a way of incentivizing private investors to be good, but there is now overwhelming evidence that this is basically just greenwashing. Okay, I realize I've already talked for far too long. Let me quickly tell you what I think should be done. 
One, I think I've already emphasized, when you're looking at comparing GDP across countries, use the actual exchange rates. Those are the ones we all face. Those are the ones we have to deal with. Don't use these false, completely fabricated purchasing power parity exchange rates, which are figments of someone's imagination, and say, that's your GDP. And that will change the kinds of climate obligations that you are demanding of countries. Bring in historical carbon debt, especially because of loss and damage, which is now such a big problem in so many countries. Uh, the attempts at the COP27 to recognize this have been one step in the right direction, but the amounts offered are so pitiful and almost meaningless. But really, in terms of recognizing the role of historical carbon debt and future carbon budget, you have to think of it in terms of the history as well as the current per capita basis. We obviously need much more climate finance, but it must be based on global public investment principles, not as foreign aid of some rich countries being nice, being good to poor countries. No, it should be recognized that this is a global public investment because this is a global problem. It's a global public bad that has to be addressed with global investment, which means every country participates, but the allocation of investment is done according to need. And it's not then, oh, you know, Germany is going to be really nice to Sierra Leone and give it a little bit of money. Or the UK is going to be very kind to Kenya and give it a little bit of money. No, it should be global public investment. Similarly, uh, when we provide incentives to private investment, de-risking, blended finance, all the catchwords of today, we have to bring in regulations and conditionalities to make sure that that finance and the investments happen along with social goals, in accordance with our social goals. We need much more public investment, so expand the SDRs, the special drawing rights of the IMF. It is liquidity that the IMF can create, and it's almost costless. Now, just like the rich countries can produce lots of money when they need it or when they decide they want it, and there's no real cost for it, Similarly, SDRs is a global liquidity for which there's no major cost. So we should be expanding SDRs as one route to make this money available to countries that need it. We could think of a global carbon fund. This is something Raghuram Rajan has proposed based on per capita emissions above the global average. We could regulate and control the private finance that continues to fund brown projects. For example, say, well, if you're going to do $1 to coal, then you have to give $5 to green energy. Border carbon taxes really are not the solution. They are essentially a trade protectionist device. And we also know that they fall disproportionately on the poor. And globally, there's very little trust among developing countries for this, because we know that principles of compensation and sharing of revenues are unlikely to be either transparent or just. If you have a global tax and dividend policy, you require global trust and international cooperation. Sadly, it doesn't seem to exist right now. But of course, everything I've said also suggests that what we really should be doing is curbing the carbon emissions of the wealthy. You can tax them, you can ban luxury carbon spending like SUVs, like private jets, like frequent flights. So maybe we say, you want to go to the moon? Well, you can't if you're just a private individual on a joyride. Um, we should be sharing green technologies, making them accessible. So the IPR regime has to change. TRIPS has to be renegotiated. 
And of course, we have to make sure that that green transition is just, not just for the workers who will lose jobs, but all of those who could be impacted by new resource grabs. I'm recognizing that there are challenges within countries and globally because there are entrenched patterns of production and consumption. I've talked about the domestic inequalities. This gives rise to power of elites. And we have seen in many countries, including my own, the rise of authoritarianism and the fact that it's intertwined with new technologies. But I will argue that the need for urgency means that we, we have to, we can't anymore pretend that this is not a problem because it's already upon us. So even as we continue our international efforts, we have to also think of national and regional strategies as well. Okay, let me stop here and I'm sorry for going on beyond the time. No, not at all. That was such an illuminating and comprehensive overview of the issues that I thought it was fa fantastic. The one thing I would disagree with you on is that we should be encouraging trips to the moon, but only with one-way tickets to get <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, some of those people, you're right. They're better off with us. <laughs> Um, okay, I would now like to ask Kathy um, to, to discuss and to, to offer some, uh, you know, constructive comments and, and uh, 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 <laughs> constructive comments. Um, I'm going to ask Kathy uh, if she can stick to 10 minutes so we have plenty of time for questions afterwards. But thank you again, Jayati. Yes, yeah, so, well, I'm very pleased to be part of this. Um, panel today and honored to share the Zoom stage with Professor Ghosh. It uh, really was a pleasure to hear the talk and I, I think I can keep my comments to 10 minutes um, in part because I agree with so much of what she said that it I don't feel a need to sit here and pull apart lots of the talk. Um, much of what she said is really I think foundational thinking for hearing about the role of inequality in, in the climate regime, and I think very right. And in some ways where I would, you know, where I would have differences, they're quite small differences, and they run even deeper in the same direction. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about climate finance, for example, and in the chart that she showed on how much climate finance is available, she showed a figure of $61.8 billion worth of climate finance available in 2014. But Indian um, analysts looked at that same number and said that actually the amount of really new, really fully climate oriented finance that year was less than 2 billion. So in some ways, the numbers, the quite depressing numbers that she's presented today um, are sometimes even more depressing than that. Um, but since I, I largely agree with her analysis of the, the climate situation and what brought us here and, and the many inequalities at the roots of them, what I'm going to be adding in my 10 minutes or so is adding the politics of it. Because I think uh, Professor Ghosh did what we all try to do at the end of climate discussions, which is to pick people back up off the floor and to offer some encouraging directions for future changes. But what I want to add is another maybe more depressing element, which is to say, well, why doesn't the world just do the very sensible things that Professor Ghosh talked about in her last couple of slides? And here, I think we need to understand that alongside the climate and economic inequality that Professor Ghosh talked about, we also have a real reinforcing inequality of politics. And in particular, our, our most vulnerable countries, 
those least who've contributed least to the climate situation are also by and large some of our politically weakest countries in the world. So if you think of the four countries that are expected to go underwater first, the Maldives, the Marshall Islands, Kiribati, Tuvalu, together they have 736,000 people. So many of these are very small countries with very little ability to make an impact on the world. Or when you look at Tuvalu in particular, Tuvalu is just 12,000 people. The country has literally the smallest GDP of any country in the world. It became independent from the UK only in 1978. And you, you have to think then about the real lack of obvious political power of these countries. And so this is a point that is often made, that is the countries that are most affected are also in many cases, the politically and economically weakest countries. And that, uh, and they have historically had a very small share of, of the blame for creating climate change. But the basic power politics of the international system puts them last. And so in some ways, it's not surprising that we're reaching the end of yet another conference of parties, another COP on climate change, and not finding anything like those brilliant solutions of obvious changes to make that so many of us see. And I think um, one of the things that Professor Ghosh talked about is that inequality within countries are also very unequal. I'm sorry, emissions within countries are also very unequal. And so again, there we find over and over, both inside countries and across countries, that it is the very powerful who are the big emitters who would be having to place really significant constraints on themselves, who have in many cases become wealthy from their access to the power and resources of fossil fuels. And perhaps it's not a big puzzle then why politically we don't get the kinds of solutions that we need. And many of those LDCs, now just making a few more comments here, many of those least developed countries, those most vulnerable to climate change are in fact largely outside the world of conventional finance and investment. And this is one of the reasons that market-based tools like carbon taxes um, really aren't very useful for those actors, which are such weak actors in global markets. Um, things like changing the patent system and technology transfer and the like are useful, but they're probably most useful for the next step up among global countries, the Indias of the world, more than the Tuvalu's in terms of thinking about solutions. And so I think um, Professor Gosha's suggestion that what we, what we really need to think of is global public investment that sees a real need for public transfers from developed countries to these countries that are already facing really major and unavoidable impacts of climate change, I think is really an important kind of argument to be making because it's pretty clear that market-based instruments will not move anything like enough finance to those countries that are most vulnerable and poorest and also already facing some of the most significant implications. That's really what the climate regime calls the loss and damage debate. And that's something that we've been hearing about a lot in these last two weeks when we have impacts from climate change 
that are just beyond what countries can be expected to rebuild from, beyond the powers of adaptation, but these kind of permanent losses. Um, and given that the basic power politics of the international system puts the big emitters first, it's not surprising that they are as slow as they are to step up and look at that historical responsibility and that they worry about the liability. But I wanna close also on a somewhat positive note, um, even politically. And I think there's two ways of thinking about global climate politics. And on the one hand, it is a fairly desperate situation and, and we don't, we're not anywhere close enough to solutions. And if we are following the basic power politics of the international system, it is, it is in fact what we see in today's climate regime, it really reflects some of those basic power dynamics that I've been talking about. But on the other hand, it's fascinating to watch the unfolding politics of the climate negotiations and of the climate regime, because this is an unusual global arena where the very small and the very poor have been punching above their weight now for quite a long time. So you heard me talk about Tuvalu, 12,000 people, smallest GDP, recently independent. Well, I was in the climate change negotiations in Copenhagen in 2009, and Tuvalu's representative really shut them down at significant moments. He had really educated himself on UN procedure. He was just insistent on the need for action and really very influential as an individual from a very small country in stopping some of the complacency of other climate negotiators. And we've repeatedly seen that from these vulnerable countries in the climate negotiations from the ways that they have been able to take their vulnerability and turn it into another kind of political power. They are morally very strong. The kinds of claims that they have to make for climate justice are very convincing. And they have often actually been influential in the negotiations themselves. I can assure you that developed countries would never have put loss and damage on the climate negotiation agenda this year. This is an agenda item that has been put there by the vulnerable countries, by the least developed countries, and they are the ones that have over and over transformed the way that the climate regime talks about what are the most important issues, who deserves what, who is supposed to act. And I find it actually very encouraging to see how representatives of these quite small countries have been able to use the United Nations negotiation system not to win. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that they have won in any way in these climate negotiations, but they've been really effective in at least stalemating and at least changing the agenda and putting forward these really quite convincing and unmissable moral arguments in an international system that rarely talks in terms of morality. But I think that they have been just a critical voice for global justice, and I hope that more of us can be part of that process. And I'll close with that. Thank you, Kathy. That was wonderful comments, and it's also nice to end on a somewhat positive note, given that this is such a hard topic. 
Um, so we have three questions already, which are all good questions. I want to just take this moment to remind you that you can either raise your hand or you can post your question in the chat. If you post your question in the chat, you should state your name and affiliation so we can introduce you properly. Um, I'm first going to ask two students to ask their questions directly. I'm going to start and I'm hoping I'm going to pronounce your name right. Sneha, can I ask you to turn on your video and unmute yourself? And then I'm going to come to Inam. So be prepared, Inam. Yeah, um, uh, thanks a lot, Professor Jayati. That was a very insightful uh, talk. So I wanted to ask about uh, your comments on the interplay between uh, gender inequality and uh, climate change uh, causes as well as impact uh, to get an idea of what is the discussions around uh, that kind of an inequality playing into um, also in terms of responsibility and in terms of the kind of policy responses that are needed. Thank you very much, Neha. Um, and can I ask Inam, could you turn on your video and unmute yourself, please? Thank you, Laura. Um, I am Inam, I'm from Bangladesh, and uh, I'm an Atlantic Fellow for Social and Economic Equity with the International Inequalities Institute at LSE. So uh, my question was, the world system, the way it's designed, especially the borders that we see, are based on colonialism. Even if we are independent, we are still following the borders that were determined by the colonizers. And the world system, like UN, UNFCCC, or whatever we are calling them, they are also determined to prevail. Like They continue to perpetuate the inequalities that we have. So if we continue to use those same structures, if we don't reshape our economies from, like, from the current demand-based or like demand of someone else, and we transform into something that is based on our own needs. If we don't do that, and if we follow the same world structure, will we ever be able to avoid the, the planetary collapse that we are all seeing? Okay, and I'm gonna add the last question from Golian Ka, who is an MSc student in health policy planning and financing at LSE and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And the question is, how important do you think the process of decolonization is in tackling these inequalities in general and climate change in particular? I guess that is kind of building on the question from Inam as well. So if you could answer those three questions and Kathy, if you want to add anything, we'll come to you uh, before taking any more questions. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. These are such good questions and uh, such profound questions. It will take a lot of time to answer them, but I'm going to try and be brief. So yes, the, you know, gender inequality is very much one of the features of inequality that I should have highlighted as well in terms, not so much in terms of the, but very similar that women, partly because of the way in which the gender division of labor is structured across the, across the globe, women contribute less to climate change and yet end up bearing the costs of it much, much more. So whether we are, and, and there are several ways in which this happens. Women typically are responsible for provisioning within households and so on. So they are the ones who are impacted when we have these impact, when we have these very strong climate disturbances that either extreme climate events or desertification that reduces uh, cultivation possibilities or movements of rivers and uh, sea levels that cause relocations of population and displacement and so on. 
typically women are the ones responsible for house family provisioning, but they're also the ones who have to then deal with the care requirements that emerge. And we know that already the needs of adaptation are dramatically increasing the needs for care. And it ends up hugely that the burden of unpaid care falls on women within households and communities. So there is a very strong element of gender inequality in the impacts of climate change. In terms of the ways in which you can actually confront it also, you find that some of the most interesting and uh, most um, uh, potentially viable ways of addressing the climate change crisis have also come from women, from social movements of women in different parts of the world, uh, from some excellent reports, UN Women has produced a really good report on uh, a, a, a gender viable recovery. I think it's called a feminist plan for economic recovery. On some of the world's leaders who are the most active on this issue and who are the most impressive on this issue also just happen to be women. When Kathy was talking, I was thinking of Mia Motley and um, she's not only extremely uh, articulate on this matter, but she has succeeded in mobilizing a very interesting group uh, through several meetings in Barbados, the Bridgetown Initiative, which is proposing major solutions for the global economy and of raising finance to deal with this whole problem of how do we get climate finance. Um, uh, Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand has shown, again, I would argue remarkable leadership in putting the need to address climate change and to ensure health for all at the heart of a broader strategy for the government. Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland, again, conscious of these concerns, recognizing the need for a much more um, cooperative response globally to these problems. So it's no, it's no accident in a way that somehow some of the most exciting initiatives have come from women. I'm not saying, you know, it's all just, binary like that, but it, it, it's worth noting. Um, Iman, the, the, the issue you raise is a, is a big one. You're really saying, do we at all aim for the strategy of development or the pattern and trajectory of development that the rich countries show us, right? And um, at one level, no, clearly not. It's just not available to us. In, and, and part of it is because it's not just um, past colonization, it's because the world is still, as you mentioned, divided up, not just in terms of our boundaries, but in terms of our access to a whole range of things. Um, you know, knowledge, technology, resources, uh, political power, seats at the bargaining table, you name it. Uh, and if any country had any doubts on that, the COVID pandemic more or less disabused them of any illusions, right? That uh, uh, the, the, the way in which the global institutions are structured, they assume a level playing field and you can't have a level playing field if some powers are already significantly larger, richer, more powerful uh, in economic terms and more um, and military terms than others. And of course, some of the institutions themselves, the IFIs, the World Bank and the IMF are deeply skewed in voting power and ability to influence uh, things. So yes, all of those problems are very, very, very strong. Uh, decolonization, therefore, I would argue, and let's not even talk about it as a, as a thing that happens like that. Okay, you decolonize and then you do climate change because honestly, we don't have time. You know what I mean? We, we can't sit around and say, well, let's 
let's get a decolonization going and let's transform the global architecture and then we will start addressing mitigation efforts and adaptation efforts because it's it's all happening too rapidly so while i agree that is better to do and that's the ideal way of doing it it's not available to us either we are heading for planetary collapse if we actually go at the current rate and um, you know, we'll be at 2.5 to 3 degrees, which will mean that large parts of our planet will actually be uninhabitable. Many, many species will have died. Uh, we will not be in a situation where we could even have a discussion like this, you know. And so I think we need to think of ways to mobilize change that uh, are the thin end of the wedge of decolonization, if you like that are not necessarily a complete decolonization, but begin that process simultaneously with addressing our problems of loss and damage mitigation adaptation. And um, some of the things that I, I, I've mentioned, you know, they're really very minor things, more uh, special drawing rights. It's, it's a no brainer and it's a really minor thing. It doesn't cost, the budgetary cost is minimal. The interest rate is, you know, 0.7%. It's really, you know, it, it can't cost anybody anything to do this. Uh, yet there is opposition to that. Uh, a whole range of other things. You know, there is so much opposition. The Ukraine war and the fallout has shown that there are such knee-jerk short-term reactions when it comes to even the slightest shift in what people have grown to expect. And it's not only because governments are bad or big business is bad. It's because governments are responding to a population that says, how dare my gas prices go up so much? Oh, you know, I can't live with this higher petrol price. And they are right to be angry because they're the ones whose carbon emissions have come down over the last decade, as I've told you, right? They have already experienced declining real incomes and less use of carbon because of the way relative prices have been structured. What is shocking is that we, and especially the bottom half of the population across the world, we allow our governments to get away with programs that so blatantly push the interests of the rich at the costs of not just everybody else, but at the costs of planetary survival. I mean, seriously, that is what it is. We are allowing our governments to pander to lobbies of the rich, rich corporations, rich elites, in ways that are deeply destructive. And this is something which is not in the enlightened self-interest of governments either. In fact, it's not even in the enlightened self-interest of um, corporations or rich people because you know you, there aren't profits to be made from a dead planet. So, uh, so I think part of our difficulty is that if we keep posing it very sharply in terms of decolonization, uh, which I agree with, by the way. I mean, everything I've told you suggests that I think it is still very much uh, an imperialist or colonial pattern. But I think posing it always like that and saying, first, we have to decolonize means that we lose the critically important constituency of the ordinary people in rich countries who are also losers of this process and who are not aware that they are losers of this process and who are enabling their governments to be completely against the interests of the poor people of the, of the rich countries. So I personally would go for a, a more uh, sort of in-between um, way of trying to deal with it, where I recognize that decolonization is essential, but I won't 
keep demanding it up front. I will rather demand changes in the institutional structures that will head towards decolonization, even if they don't deliver it immediately. Because I think the immediate problem is just too damn urgent. You know, we can't afford to, to sit and wait for other good stuff to happen first, and then we deal with this. Kathy, do you have anything to add? That was brilliant. It was a very eloquent statement of what I also think in many ways, but, you know, I think one of the things that people often say in response to questions like this about, well, how can you talk about climate change when there are all these really important drivers of climate change that are, you know, fundamental economic structures of inequality and, you know, whether they be those related to decolonization and economics or those related to patriarchy, you know, how can you do it? I think I think I also say with Professor Ghosh, it's you know, and it's not just me saying it, but it's often one of the mantras that comes from climate activists who are talking about how do we keep up our our hope and activism in a context like this. You know, every step does matter, and and every greenhouse gas emission that is reduced is part of the solution. And then every step is never enough. And so it, it sort of requires a double agenda of thinking both about the kinds of actions that are within your power and that you can do. And for countries that gets often phrased as the, the co-benefits of climate action, the things that carry benefits today, in addition to carrying benefits for the future, that there's a whole set of actions there that people can do and should be doing without ever losing sight of the bigger agendas at the same time. And that trying to keep both of those points in, in place is, is really the only thing that can be done. And I think if we didn't have some kind of sense of urgency, perhaps we could do it in sequences, but it's pretty clear um, that there is a, an urgency to taking action on climate change that I think requires us to have a kind of double agenda moving forward at the same time, rather than looking for one to happen before the other. So I would, that's mostly agreeing with that point there. Okay, so we have one last question from a student, or I think it's a student. Um, I would ask Marco um, if 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 he would prefer me to read out his question or or uh, turn on his video and ask and unmute himself. Um, hi, sorry, I can try to to explain that myself. So, hi, I, I am Marco Frenzo. I come from Defram, an economist, and um, sorry, I should have put that on my name. Um, and I think my question comes from especially the fact that I'm also skeptical taxes that at the end are going to be paid by um, those um, developing country farmers or producers that should not be affected by them at all. At the same time, I and do not have any actual idea in my head of what are the how do we so how the practicalities to find other ways forward so as you said this global investment um a bilateral investment going through how do we ensure that it's fair and that it's uh, not going to end up looking like the current foreign energy system that we have at the moment that is often faulty and unfortunately um, due to failures from developed countries so um um yeah i was quite keen on hearing that thank you Okay, if I can ask a question myself, um, 
I kind of, one of my favorite articles of yours, Jayati, is where you kind of take apart this idea of global convergence and you show how much China and India are kind of driving that, that quote unquote convergence. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more to disaggregate among uh, low and middle income countries, like if developing countries are really on the same sorts of trajectories around these things or whether we see kind of, you know, divergence. I noticed on your inequality graph that African, the top 10% in Africa was actually below uh, Europe. And, and so it's that seems like a very big outlier. So I wanted you just to comment a bit more about that. I think that's all the time that we have for questions. So we'll just take these two. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. So yeah, Marco, very good point. But you know, uh, I'm I'm would be against a carbon border adjustment tax because, as you say, it will fall on all all the wrong people. It will fall on developing countries and poor people in developing countries, but it will also fall on poor people in the rich countries, who, frankly, as I've as I've just shown you, are actually showing reducing carbon emissions. The problem is with the rich. So let's look at the consumption of the rich tax specific activities, I mean, private jets, for example, maybe a 10,000% tax on private jets, maybe a 10,000% tax on second homes. This is, by the way, one of the biggest emitters in the United States, second homes of the wealthy. And so, you know, third homes even more and so on. By second home, I don't even mean one that you keep for renting out, but you, you go for your vacation, you have, et cetera, you know, all of that. Um, so let's think of certain types of taxation. Let's think of a wealth tax. Um, and this is true across the board. In India, there's an estimate done by an, an, an economist here that says that if you just tax the top 760, sorry, 965 families, that's all, less than a thousand families, you just tax them 4% of their wealth, you would get 1% of GDP, which is more than the entire health spending of central and state governments put together. It is more than 10 times the green investments that the government is either doing or subsidizing. That's just out of uh, you know, less than a thousand families who would not even notice a 4% difference in their wealth, okay? Imagine if you extended that just a little bit more. Across the world, I mean, Gabriel Zuckman has done really good studies of how much you would get from a wealth tax at, on the extreme rich, forget you know the middle and uh, moderately rich and so on. Just go for the extreme rich, the trillionaires, not the billionaires, and you get significant amounts. But most of all, I just want to emphasize: special drawing rights are such low-hanging fruit. You know they are costless. The IMF can just issue another six hundred and fifty billion, and that's huge because a whole bunch of countries that are currently in debt distress can ease that. A whole bunch of countries that are flailing around for resources to do some minimal uh, public investment can use that money. But most of all, at least 400, 500 billion of that will never get used because it goes to rich countries who don't need it. So all that money can just be directed into a fund for global public investment for climate. And then that's global public investment which is allocated according to need for loss and damage, for mitigation, for adaptation, wherever it's required. In other words, you know, it's, it's, it's not even technically very demanding, but of course it needs political support. That's the critical thing. 
in the United States, the very fact that the Republicans control Congress means that it's already killed. You could still issue special drawing rights because you don't need to go to Congress as long as it's only 650 billion. But in fact, if you wanted to recycle any of that, the US, even though it's doing nothing with that money, it's not using it at all. It's just lying as an account in the IMF. It would still not be willing, which is, I would say, extremely unfortunate. But there are lots of low-hanging fruit solutions. The border adjustment tax is the least uh, desirable of any of these, and it's also likely to be the least effective because it doesn't really address the problem of the ones who are the biggest emitters. You know, so so I think that's um, the point I would make there. And Laura, we could have another whole session on your question about the differences. But yeah, I, I would put China out there in a whole different category. I think it's not, you know, China and India now are, are completely different. There is really no comparison now anymore between China and India. So all that talk of Chindia and so on, all that is, is no good. Because China has transformed itself since I wrote that article even, even since then, it has transformed so much that it's in a different league, not necessarily because of the per capita income rise. I mean, it's still 30% of the US, for example, but because the sheer size, the ability to control investment, the very significant investments it has made in the past, the ability to have different trajectories of finance, uh, which it's shown again in the period of the Ukraine war and so on. All of this make it a very different and very important player. And um, in that sense, the differences across developing countries could even turn out to be something of a, an advantage for many developing countries. Uh, I have a friend, uh, well, Tandika Mukandavide, you all know him. He was uh, in LSE as a professor. He used to say when he was talking about, you know, China becoming a major investor in Africa and so on, that it's always better to have a competing imperialists because then you can play one off against the other, you can get better terms out of each. So I think the fact that there are now some of these big guys emerging, new kids on the block who are willing to go out there and have more of a global reach can be used to the advantage of developing countries who were forced to accept any terms that they got. Um, is that necessarily, I mean, look, I, at heart, I'm a multilateralist. I don't believe you can get anywhere without international cooperation, especially because of these are global problems. But in the, what will force rich countries to the table? What will force cooperation? And I think that kind of forcing of cooperation might be the, the only way of doing that is when more and more countries show that they don't really need you in the same way, that you're not, G7, you're not the rulers of the world, you're just the rulers of yourselves and not very efficient ones at that. So if you want us to come along, you will have to offer more. And so I think basically, yes, the rest of the world needs more bargaining power. And some of the changes that are happening are actually helping that. Thank you very much. Kathy, uh, do you have any final thoughts? Well, I was just sitting here thinking that um, one of the common questions on my global environmental governance exams is, you know, do developing countries share interests in global uh, environmental negotiations? And Jayati just got an A, <laughs> <laughs> a distinction on her answer. But it it is, I think, one of the most interesting 
dimensions of the international system in recent years in the climate regime, also in the political economy more generally, just the diversification of developing countries and the very different trajectories they're on, you know, the rise of the importance of South-South diplomacy and South-South trade and South-South investment and South-South cooperation, South-South donors. And, you know, it just has really transformed, I think, the international system. And while clearly there's still a very strong dynamic going on of developed countries, countries versus developing countries, I think that that just grossly understates the complexity of the current international system. And obviously China's position is really part of that. But one of the readings that's also on my reading list is about India as a donor. And you know what, what does it look like and why does a country like India become a donor itself when it is also a country that historically has been the recipient of, of, of donations and, and, and aid. And I think it's actually, in my, in my view, one of the more hopeful aspects of current global politics is the way that we really have broken out of some of the really rigid north-south dichotomies and have just a much richer world at the level of south-south relations than I think existed historically. And that that has proven to be a pretty rich place. I mean, one of the sets of actors that was really most persuasive for the Chinas and Indias and Brazils of the world in terms of making them think about their role in climate change was when their fellow developing countries began to say, again, back in Copenhagen, you know, we need everybody to be acting. This isn't just something where Europe and North America are supposed to be act, but we really need everybody to act. And so some of these dynamics inside the South have been some of the most um, transformative, really. And I think that that's a place where, you know, new colonialisms can also form there. I'm not, I'm not you know, being naive about what is happening in that space. But I think it really has been one of the most interesting and important um, developments of the last, I would probably take it back to 2000 when, or 2001 when climate joined, joins, when China joined the WTO as kind of the moment when the South-South dimensions really began to be really transformed. So very interesting dynamics for inequality, for the global political economy, for climate, and for a lot more. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, both of you, for giving us such a rich uh, discussion and sort of bringing together all sorts of different processes in terms of changing production structures, the kind of politics of inequality, and also the, the question about gender and sort of the geography of care. I think that's really interesting kind of thinking about how climate change is going to shift uh, care and, and the geography of care. Um, to bring in another Tandikaism, uh, Tandika always used to say to me that the problem in developing countries is poverty, but the problem in rich countries is wealth. And I think this is really a topic where, you know, it's a, a developmental problem, but it's also a problem of, of wealth and wealth being a barrier to change. Um, but anyhow, I, I just want to thank you both for such a, a wonderful, rich presentation. Um, I would like everybody if, to, to unmute themselves and do a bit of a round of applause for our two speakers today. But thank, thank you. you. <laughs>
So thank you so much uh, for joining us for this Cutting Edge Lecture Series. Um, next week's lecture series has been cancelled because of the UCU strike. Um, but we do have another lecture series uh, in two weeks time, uh, which will be, oh my gosh, it's going to be on Friday, the, um, let me look in my calendar. Um, I think it's it's got the panel on social media and disinformation, uh, which is a really exciting topic. And I hope that you all join us for that. Uh, without further ado, uh, thank you to everybody who came. Thank you for the wonderful questions from students and other participants. And I'll see you in two weeks. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to this lecture recording from the Autumn 2022 Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice Lecture Series. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Search YouTube for International Development LSE. Find out about upcoming events, including the next Cutting Edge Lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website and find us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.